Welcome to Creatively Christian, a podcast by Theophany Media, where we inspire, inform, educate, and empower creative Christians of all types. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Hollingsworth. Today, in part one of this two-part Creatively Christian episode, Andrea connects with A&R representative for Centricity Music, John Mays, to talk about the Christian music industry and the importance of stewarding our creative gifts. All right, everyone. Welcome again to another podcast episode from Creatively Christian. I'm your host, Andrea Sandifer, and today I am so thrilled to be joined by John Mays. And John, I just like to toss it right back to my guests. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you live, a little bit about your family, and maybe some of your creative work highlights? Okay. Well, uh, my name is John Mays. I live here in Franklin, Tennessee with my wife of 43 years. We have uh, 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 grown children now in their 30s. Who One of them has given us two grandchildren, a five and a two-year-old. That, takes, uh, that eclipses our life, and we love it that way. Uh, grandchildren are the reward for the toils of, of raising children. I've, I've figured that out. I've heard that uh, often. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we love spending time with them, and, and they're so grateful that they live here in town. Uh, I grew up in a little town out in West Texas. Uh, the little church I grew up in uh, began affirming some musical gifting in me when I was a kid, literally uh, 10, 12 years old. It was a tiny church, but I was the music kid at my church, and uh, I didn't go to college. As soon as I graduated high school, I kept chasing that thing which basically meant playing in different bands that I could find uh, out of high school. One of those bands uh, opened for a band out of Nashville. It was kind of a big deal for us. And that band uh, was, uh, uh, their bass player was leaving and I was, I was a bass player. And so they asked if I would like to come on a certain date to audition for them. And uh, I had spent two years with this particular band in East Texas, and it had been probably, the, 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 if I've ever been tested about, do I really love doing this? It was during those two years, and I had about reached the end of that season and thought, well, this will be a neat way to end this chapter, and I can say I had this professional audition, and I went to Nashville, and when we opened for them, they had a girl singing for them that was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought, if I go to the audition, I might see that girl again, which I did not. But I got the job, which moved me to Nashville, and that was in 1977. And I married that girl one year later. Oh, <laughs> so I love that. You can imagine my life changed in so many ways. It was the first time I was actually, uh, in any sort of practical way, paid to be a, a musician. And it was a great experience. These were some of the best people. And, and one of the, the guy who was the band director in that band, uh, really, I would credit him. He's passed away now, but I would credit him with teaching me how to be a musician and to think like a musician and to dig into different kinds of music and pay attention to them, uh, l- learn how to break them down and, and apply them. So, so grateful for that season. Uh, I, that led to a season of being uh, just a, a session player here in Nashville. There are road players that, you know, people who do play in touring bands. And then there are guys who just play on records. And I, was, I managed to m- work my way into that kind of work, 
which also led them to some songwriting and independent production. Uh, and some of that work made its way to uh, the ear of a, a friend, still a friend, these, uh, after all these years, a guy named Neil Joseph, who was a producer in town back in that day, uh, and got hired by Word Records to uh, uh, run their labels here in Nashville. And I knew him, he had heard some of this indie production and songwriting I had done. And he took me to breakfast one morning and uh, said, hey, I'm going to need to hire an A&R person. And I think you'd be good at it. And this was, of course, was before Google. So I, I didn't want to be uncool and say, what is that? And I couldn't like figure it out sitting there. I had to actually go ask somebody. But uh, uh, I did. I had heard the term, but I didn't know what it was. Uh, but it is, it does speak to the power of someone who sees something in you that you don't even see in yourself, right? Neil was really good at that, I think. And uh, it, I, I learned more about what the job is. And we can talk about that either here or later in the conversation. Uh, and I would say that the first year of doing it, you know, I had only been a musician. Now I'm, I'm almost in my probably late 30s by this time and I had done nothing in my entire life literally except play music uh, or, or later on uh, write and produce music so this was a huge shift where there's an office and I have a salary and a, uh, there's office culture and memos and protocols and water cooler talk and all these things that I've never been a part of you know so I, I wondered about Neil's assessment assessment of me I think you'd be good at this a lot that first year I did I don't think I thought that I was good for it but uh, eventually I signed my first artist and things puzzle pieces started to come together and that was in 1987 that I started there I was at word for eight years I then moved over to uh, Sparrow Records which is in the universal system I was there three years onto another label called Benson for two years. And uh, after that period, uh, I was introduced to a family up in Seattle who had approached me about starting a label, which had kind of always been a dream of mine uh, and, and not something I ever thought I would be able to do because of how much it cost and uh, just the risk of it, especially at that time, it was a very volatile time in the, in the industry on a business level. And uh, this family was just so precious and supportive. And that was the beginning of Centricity, where I work now. Uh, that was probably in 02 or 03 that we began to have those conversations. 06 was our first actual release of any music. And uh, I'm still here. Uh, we're going on 15 years, which is unbelievable. So I've kind of had two jobs in my life, one playing music and then one being an A&R person. Uh, and I, I don't know if this is a good segue into what that means, uh, but it, would this be a good time to talk about that? Yeah, that I, I love the idea of you sitting there with him and going, okay, yeah, that sounds awesome. And not really knowing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's just one of those fly on the wall moments that would have been, yeah. So yeah, yeah tell, tell those that don't know and understand what yeah. it is that you do. Yeah, because it's an interesting, uh, A&R stands for artist and repertoire, and it's an old term that goes back to the 50s in music biz industry circles. 
there was a guy named John Hammond who actually has a book, if anyone's interested, called The Operator. Uh, and John Hammond is kind of credited as the first real A&R person in the modern music era. Uh, John Hammond was a producer himself and, and did some writing, but uh, sort of saw a need in commercial music when in the 50s, 40s and 50s, a lot of what labels were recording and releasing were show tunes, classical music, but not a lot of reflection of the pop music that was being played in the clubs and bars, you know, that people were gravitating toward. So John Hammond finds like Billie Holiday in a club and people like this and uh, actually signed Bob Dylan, some people that uh, he then would like identify and then take them to a record label and say, you should be releasing music on this person. They're singing songs that people love, but you're not releasing music like this. So he kind of started uh, what is now my job. So there are kind of four functions in the role. Uh, one is this talent scout uh, function, which is you're responsible for finding the talent that your label will sign to record and release music on. Uh, second is sort of the, uh, the song category. So that's the R part, the repertoire, right? Going back to John Hammond, John would sit through a a set of Billie Holiday music and say, well, out of those 18 songs you just performed, I think these are the 10 you should record. Or I think these, if we worked on this or that, you know, so there's a lot of, probably we, this is where we spend our most time, which is getting songs, identifying which ones we're gonna record or getting them to a recordable place. So you're working with the artist who's almost always the writer as well and, uh, helping to identify which next set of songs we're going to record. That used to be a record, right? What we call a CD or a record with 12 or 13 songs on it. Now it could be a, a song, three songs, an EP. Uh, you know, everybody's kind of always writing and recording now and releasing stuff all the time. So that changed a lot of the rhythm of what I did for so many years. But it's also, there's a fun element to that now. So that's uh, the second part. The third is overseeing the production of the records. So uh, I, I try to align the vision and direction uh, with the artist and hire producers that would match that or a producer and where this, what the songs are, the stories they're telling, the messages that uh, are important for this artist to say in this next season trying to align people around that to accomplish that in a, a recording. And, uh, you know, there's the creative sort of vision side and that piece of it. And then there's also the responsible for the budget and the timeline, turning it in on time and all those kinds of things. The technical side of it, uh, where you're approving mixes and mastering and th those sorts of things. So it's that's sort of wide ranging, but summed up in just uh, you're, the, you're responsible for the overseeing of the production of the music. And then fourth would be probably the least tangible, but with most of these artists that get signed, you're the first relationship they have at the label because it starts with you. So it's not the most important by any means. It's important to have a good relationship with everyone on the label team, you know. But uh, since it starts with you, it sort of ends up being yours to manage and you find that you are in the role of champion, championing that artist to the rest of the team. And sometimes that's 
no problem when like everything's great and hits are flowing and that kind of thing. But when when times are more bleak than that, or when uh, uh, we haven't had a hit in three or four years, sometimes you're reminding the team of your original belief in this artist, you know, or why it's important to keep going. Uh, uh, and of, obviously when it's in time to part ways, which that happens with every artist relationship, you're also sort of the, you're the driver of how that's going to happen and the the meeting where that will happen. And it's uh, the worst part of the job, obviously. But sure. uh, uh, so those are sort of the four functions, uh, talent scout, song person, uh, production overseer, and I'll, I'll call it relationship manager. Uh, and every label, I think, might have a little definition of what A&R is, but everybody at every label is doing one of those four things on any given day at their, in their A&R position. Very cool. Yeah, that's very wide ranging. Uh, man, uh, that's just a really important thing for artists and songwriters. So thank you for the work that you do. And, and um, not to name drop, but Centricity does foster relationships with some artists that are pretty darn incredible. Who, who do you enjoy working with right now? Who, who do you, who did you spend time with this week? Andrea, you can't do that to me. There's, there's probably not much of a, a week that goes by that you're not in some sort of contact with everybody, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, now I am one of three A&R people. I oversee our A&R department. Oh, so cool. there are two people that work with me and we divide the roster, you know, uh, but I think we're at 17 artists now total. Nice. So it's uh, it's probably hard for any A&R person to manage more than five or six artists. Uh, and when I say manage, I don't mean like a manager, but just manage the A&R process with, right. with uh, more than five or six artists. Because at any given time, you've got multiple recordings going on with multiple artists and that's just a lot to keep your hands around, you know, and your, your head around. So I don't think uh, if, if you would have asked that question, even three years ago, I would say, well, right now I'm working on a record with so-and-so or so-and-so, but truthfully, I'm working with uh, every artist at some stage of recording right now. Uh, you know, I've got, uh, Jason Gray, who's only working on a single, and we're trying to find that one song that he needs to single this fall. Uh, I have Unspoken, who's working on a, a live record. Uh, I have Lauren Daigle, who's just now starting to write again, and we're setting up co-writes for her. So everybody's in some different stage or rhythm, but there's not much of a week that goes by that you're not in some sort of communication with the, all the people that you're charged with their A&R work that's incredible and i oh i love to hear that lauren's writing again that makes my heart yeah. happy yeah that's yeah. exciting um yeah do you still like creating do you like do you still pick up your bass and play <laughs> you know i did until a couple of years ago and that that was mostly the worship team at my church you know and i did love doing that i will turn 65 this year my hair started graying a good five years ago and I saw a picture someone showed me uh, or posted somewhere or something of the worship team up on our, at our church. And it was like, huh, which one of those guys is not like the others? You know, I was so clearly generations ahead of everybody else on the stage. And it seemed like 
maybe this is the, a dignified time to step down and, and let younger people come in. So I, I uh, other than just sitting here at the house sometimes, you know, I'll get it out and play. I play piano and, and often noodle around on piano and find a song idea in there somewhere, you know, that uh, I'll talk with an artist about. But I would say most of my creative work, well, there's, there's the creativity of any project we're working on. And there's, there's a lot of call for imagination and direction and creativity of where we're going with this thing, you know, and that even includes you get down the road and realize we well, well, we took a wrong turn. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to have to recreate what we've already created the first time and, and head another direction. But uh, I would say I, I co-write songs a whole lot. Uh, when an artist comes in and we're listening to songs, then maybe they're bringing in 30 songs, you know, and we've got to pick five out of these 30. Hopefully we can get that. I'm, I'm making those numbers up. Sometimes it's a much greater ratio, sometimes less. But uh, so much of my work is like, should the bridge say this? Or, uh, you know, I don't feel like, I feel like the second verse is saying the same thing that the second, the first one does. And in any other room, that would be a co-writer, right? Uh, what, what if you change this line to this or whatever? But I learned early on that, uh, you know, you, it's, it's, it's going to break down a lot of trust if you're an artist and a writer and I'm your A&R person and I'm coming in and messing with your song and taking a percentage for it. Uh, that that's going to feel at least yucky and uh, and uh, maybe even disingenuous or like my motive is not just for the best recording or song. It's actually so I can put money in my pocket. So I, I never have, never will. No one that ever works with us ever will take a percentage of a song that they have a hand in because that's just part of our job. You know, we get paid to do this job and that's part of it. So there is a lot of creative, creative expression that gets worked out in all that. Uh, I don't know how many songs in my career that's really long now that I would have said I've co-written, co uh, but a bunch. Uh, and I don't have any qualms about that. I don't have any regrets about that at all. If the song is better, I'm all for it. And most of our artist relationships are to the point that if you suggest something and the artist is like, ugh, you know, I don't think so. That, that we're so cool about that. And I mean, there is obviously, you know this, there's no right or wrong. Uh, it's all so subjective and what makes something good or better is really subjective. So, uh, but that's pro those are probably the areas that my creative expression gets worked out these days. That's awesome. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful example of being a champion for these songwriters, mm -hmm. these artists is being able to come alongside them as a, like a coach, a co-writing coach. And mm. um, man, I have learned the the benefit of co-writing just recently, just put the finishing touches on uh, just a little demo for um, something we're doing with Nashville Christian songwriters this weekend. Um, yeah. Our challenge was to find a co-writer this past month and create something and then That's gather so it up and share it. And it was so fun and it was yeah. so powerful to see, uh, the two minds coming together, you know, different, different. And she's actually, ironically, she's in Florida. So we're even in different, completely different Incredible. corners of the nation. <laughs> so. I, I will say, Andrea, there are a few writers that I've met over the years that just 
they don't like co-writing or they're just not good at it. But most people, and it's a weird thing, like you think about all the, all the other creative disciplines and no one co-paints or co-sculpts, you know, but uh, co-writing, songwriting is such a, uh, almost every time the two or three people will leave that room going, that's a better song than I would have written on my own. And that's powerful. So uh, for all anyone listening, I would encourage them to try it if they haven't. Uh, and, and even just the idea of opening your heart and mind up to another way of saying something. Uh, even if you don't record the song or use the song for anything, your crafting at least will get better just from that experience. Absolutely. Oh, I 100% agree. Everybody should try it at least once. That's awesome. Yeah. And if it's not a good experience, try it again, because I've, <laughs> there you go. I've had that happen too. So, oh yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you will be the better writer in the room and sometimes the other person will be, and that's fantastic. That's the yeah. way it ought to be. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, the, the first time we got to connect was this past October in Nashville when I went down for a conference and I walked yeah. away from that thinking, okay, John is pretty fantastic at encouraging <laughs> other songwriters. So in our shows, we love to spend some time kind of um, educating people and, but mostly want to encourage and empower um, creatives. So uh, I'd love to spend the rest of our time there. And I kind of sent these questions to you ahead of time, but let's just dig into them because I think these are really, these are good things that a lot of people would have a lot of questions um, similar to this maybe, but so what would you say to someone that struggles to balance art, faith, and business? <laughs> yes. Oh, this is funny. And I don't remember if we talked about this the night we met, Andrea, but uh, uh, I think when I saw that question, the first thing that kind of came to my mind was give yourself a break. That's the first thing I would say to them. Give yourself some grace. Uh, these are three areas, art, faith, and and business that, that don't naturally go together. Not, none of them need the other to exist, right? You can make beautiful art without worrying about making a living at it or at glorifying God. You can certainly glorify God without art or business. All those things, they don't need each other, but there is a unique and I think special calling for people who are trying to hold those things together. And I used to actually do an entire talk on this. And when I did it, I had a slide deck and I had these three circles, right? Art, business, and faith. And along the way of the talk, these three circles would come together and overlap, you know, in this place in the middle. And I made that overlap gold. Like, I think I put a smiley face on on it. <laughs> the, and the, what I was trying to get at was like, this is the place you want to live where these three things intersect and overlap for you. Well, I wish I could go back to every one of those people who ever heard that talk and just apologize because that's probably a giant crock. I just, I think over the years I've realized those, they just don't go together and it's just going to be messy to try to hold them together. You're invited into that messiness but it is, I think I looked at it as a problem to solve and it's not, it's not a solvable problem. These things will always push against each other, but uh, it is a tension that you're invited to manage and not everybody can handle that. Right. 
uh, and I don't know if anybody that's listening would be like thinking, oh, this makes sense. But to make it sort of practical, uh, I think in any given day as a, as a songwriter, a, a believing songwriter, you could finish a song that is making your heart beat fast. It's so beautiful, right? Or maybe you got a, an email from some person you didn't even know that said, I want I want to tell you, I heard your song and I had to get in touch with you because it changed my way of thinking. It changed my life. I don't view this situation the same as I did before I heard your song. Well, that's fruit. That's God glorifying, right? Then you realize my rent is due in two weeks and I could really use some income from my music making. None of that. There's no shame in any of that, right? Uh, if you feel invited to do music as a career, as a Christian, you're going to wrestle with all three, holding all three of these things together. It's unique to what we do. I think if you take the art piece out of it, the music piece out of it, like every church in the world is trying to combine ministry and, and business, right? Most businesses who are who have a spiritual mission, a Christian mission, have to do good business. And I've been an elder at a church for years. It's a mess there. Uh, it feels icky to combine ministry and business. And then you, the art piece on top of it, give yourself some grace and realize that you'll never figure it out, but just dive in and don't feel shame when you're focused on one piece of those three, because you'll get to the others eventually, maybe in that same day. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's it's a constant um constant battle in my world and it's that's really assuring yeah. that it they're not really meant to coexist necessarily in that no. don't need to. Yeah, I yeah, exactly. One doesn't need the other. I think that's a good reminder. So yeah. awesome. Okay. Uh something that stuck with me since October when you said this was about personal integrity and work ethic. So why is personal integrity and work ethic in our lives and our creative pursuits so important? Yeah. Well, they're in a way, these are two different topics. They do, they do go together, but you can certainly have one without the other. You know, you can, you can have high work ethic and be a heathen (laughs) and you can be a very trusted high integrity person and have low work ethic. But uh, I do think to be, for the most part, to be successful in these this endeavor that we're in, uh, it does require both. And probably on the work ethic side, it would be almost universal. I mean, you can find this anywhere. One of my favorite quotes is a, a Will Rogers quote that uh, that most people miss opportunity when it shows up because it's usually wearing overalls. <laughs> in other words, uh, you you got to go to work, right? And any, any uh, successfully creative person that I've ever read, forget music, authors, painters, poets, will tell you, until I learn to show up every day and go to work, like the whole uh, creativity is about, you know, uh, it's 80% perspiration and 20% inspiration, that whole thing. That's just a that's just a truth about making anything creative. The people who, who get the work out, right. Who, uh, they, they, 
you don't look at their year and see that they've written two songs this year, right? They've written 60 songs this year because they committed themselves to doing the work and the work is not always inspirational, uh, but it does lead to inspiration often, not always, but often. So uh, there's so much, there's so many books out there on this and, and great quotes, but uh, one that inspired me a lot was uh, Stephen King's book called On Writing. Uh, which is about the first half is about his story, which is incredible. You know, he was hit by a, he was out for a walk and got hit by a van and it's a miracle that he, he lived, but how that affected his commitment to his work. And then Stephen King has been writing at the same desk, 3,500 words a day minimum for going on 30 years. This is his commitment to the discipline. And he he will tell you in this book there's no way i would have and and the the reward and uh uh you know accomplishment of stephen king whether you like his work or not that's you know a different category but i don't think there's another living writer that's had more books that have been uh turned into screenplays the awards he's been the guy gets out to work and he is good and he's celebrated for it now you need some natural gifting. If you don't have natural gifting, it doesn't matter how much work you put in, right? But it's sort of like God's job is to give you the gift, then your job is to steward it. And the stewarding of it is the showing up and going to work, putting on the overalls. So that's the work ethic part. The personal integrity part for me is a lot more about building trust with your audience, with your co-writers, with the people who support you. And Andrea, it's, uh, you know, it's funny, integrity, I, I saw a guy talk one time, he was talking about integrity and character, and he had two hula hoops, uh, and he's holding them apart, and he says, this hula hoop is who people think you are, and this hula hoop is who you actually are, and he starts to bring them together, you know, and they begin to overlap, and he's like, this here is integrity, where these people, where this is overlapping, and he brought the two together where it looked like one, um, one hula hoop or one giant circle. And he said, this is very rare for someone, for a human being to get to the place where absolutely who people think they are is absolutely who they are, right? When, uh, when they're in private. But the, the job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in you to grow those things closer and closer together as you grow in your faith and in just in your age. Uh, so if you, uh, it's, it's so funny. And from my perspective in Christian music, it's a pretty small community. You know, there are probably, even including the artists, there may be 300 people that do 90% of the commercial Christian music that's out in the world. And a lot of us, we all know each other, right? But uh, I've now had the privilege of being around it for so long. Somebody shows up and there's a problem with their integrity or their character. It's known really quickly and they're gone pretty soon. Hmm. Uh, and even the ones that hang out for a while, you're just watching it going, there's something fishy there and God's probably going to take care of that. <laughs> and almost always... It does happen. I, I think it's true in larger communities too, but it might not just rise to the surface as quickly, you know, as it does in ours. Uh, but 
we're talking about kingdom stuff here, right? Where you are a person who does what you say you will do. You're a person who, and I'm, I I talk to the guys who work with me all the time. Like if you say you're going to be there at two o'clock, be there at two o'clock, honor the other person's time. Yes. We work in the music business. They're probably going to be late, but you were there when you said you were going to be there. Uh, You're supposed to call a person at a certain time, call them at that time. So little bitty things like that, all of them, of course, reflecting a life of faith that is honest. When you when you are writing songs that uh, are bringing the hula hoops closer together, right? This is who I really am. And I'm trying to express this lyric the best I can to tell you, my audience, this is my struggle. This is the, uh, this is where I break down. This is where I don't know if I believe what I say I believe anymore. It's so weird how most Christian artists never want to talk about those things publicly, of course, but it's the stuff that connects with everybody else so universally, right? It's the most powerful kind of lyric. If you think about it, uh, almost always when you hear an artist or a songwriter be vulnerable about where they are in their own life in a way that reflects their own character and integrity, it there's always, always this resonance of me too. I I would never have the courage to say that, but me too. Well, that's such a powerful connection with an audience that you don't want to live that kind of life of personal integrity so you can manipulate your audience. Right. But I do think you will be surprised as you try to practice it in your songwriting and in communication, how it brings people into the truth of what you're writing there's probably no more powerful response from an audience member than me too. If you connect on that level and if you say, uh, Lord, I want to be yours. Okay. Uh, that's not an original statement. It's true, but it's not original, right? Uh, you might not get a real me too connection, but Madeline Lingle in her book, uh, walking on water said one time, uh, she defined art in that book as, that art is that which makes the truth new all over again. Art is that which makes the truth new all over again. Well, that's a pretty high bar, right? To, to carry into a writer's room, especially when you're open to write something that Caleb will play. <laughs> but uh, it's an awesome standard for uh, how can I use my own integrity, my own experience in an honest way to put a twist on this thing that's been said a thousand times. There is no new truth. There's nothing to write about that exposes new truth, but can I reframe it in a way from my own personal experience that maybe is a little bit risky. I don't know if people are ready to hear this from me, but I'm going to risk it and see if I, if anybody out there says me too, or that, that thing of I've always felt that way, but I've never thought of it like that. I've heard that a million times, but a, that makes me reconsider it. Is that not an incredible reward, right? For taking the risk of just honestly approaching someone in a lyric or song in that way. So I think those are how those two things work together, uh, integrity and discipline toward a high work ethic. Uh, you can, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more quote, okay? And then I'll- yeah, I love it, keep thing. it going. I love this. Uh, I worked with an artist that only people 
from the 90s who knew CCM would know this name, but a, a great singer-songwriter named Margaret Becker uh, told me one time that when she was indie, she felt like she was digging trenches in the dirt with her bare hands to put her songs into to get to people. When she signed her record deal, they gave her a shovel. <laughs> I love that because the image is you have a better tool now, but you still have to do the work. It's your job to do the digging. And every label, I don't care what they tell you when they're selling you to get you to come sign with them. It's true for every label. They cannot do that personal work for you that you have to do. And it's one of the first things we look for when we're scouting an artist is what is their work ethic like? And do they approach their work in a, in a way that reflects who they genuinely are, who they are as an honest person for that season of their life? And of course, that's going to change, right? Uh, you won't make the same music next year that you did this year because God is completing the work that he started in you always. That happens until you're gone. So uh, the work that you make now that reflects your own integrity and, and personal commitment to honesty will look different two years from now than it does now. That's awesome. Uh, you want your work to grow and change and morph according to what God's teaching you and doing. I always try to work with our artists and say, we're not making a movie here. We're just making a photograph, right? This is just a, a little slice of the season you're in right now. It may be 15 songs, I don't know, or it may be one, but you're not having to tell the story of your life. You're having to tell the story of what life you're living right now. If you just tell the truth about that, we'll be in good shape. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for listening today. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow of this special two-part Creatively Christian episode. And to see our show notes where we put all the resources mentioned in this episode, you can head over to theophanymedia.com forward slash maze one. Creatively Christian is a product of Theophany Media. You can find out more at theophanymedia.com. This show is hosted by Brandon Hollingsworth, Andrea Sandifer, Bill Brooks, and Lynn Baber. Our logo is by Bill Brooks. Our music is by Bill Brooks and Andrea Sandifer. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a blessed day, and keep on creating for our Lord.